You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. In 67 CE, right, and again, you know, just to kind of recap on the terminology here, CE is like the PC way of saying AD, right? So there's BCE and CE, which equates to BC and AD, uh, but since BC and AD um, cor- correspond to uh, the uh, uh, birth of Jesus, um, the PC way, which is a you know way of saying you know making Jews happy of uh, doing it, is uh, is saying uh, BCE before the Common Era and CE the Common Era. So in 67 CE, um, uh, the Jews of Judea, which was a Roman province under um, the direct procuratorship of the Roman Empire. Um, uh, launched a rebellion, a, a revolt against the Roman Empire. This wasn't the first time there was unrest among the Jews against the Roman Empire, but this was, uh, to that point, the largest flare-up of that uh, of of the anti-Roman sentiment that existed um, among the Jewish population in Judea. It was a tremendous anti-Roman sentiment among the Jewish population of uh, Judea. Um, in, in particular, um, among a group of um, Jews that uh, were known at the time as uh, as uh, zealots, um, and they were zealots because not only because they had a sort of uh, militant anti-Romanism, but were but had a sort of uh, a militant and political view of of Torah and of Jewish law, um, had a belief that. Um, Judaism ought to be the um, Torah ought to be the sole law governing the people of Israel. That there ought to be Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel. Um, that uh, that any foreign sovereignty over the land of Israel was an affront uh, to, uh, to to God and uh, to the Jewish tradition. And so um, Roman uh, occupation had to be resisted and fought against at all costs. Um, by sixty seven CE because of a, a series of, um, in effect, mismanagement on the part of the Roman Empire and, and poor understanding of how to work with the Jewish population, which was not uncommon among the Romans, not really knowing how to deal with the native populations of the places that they were controlling. Um, the Jews, um, led in large part by this group called the Zealots, uh, launched a revolt against the Roman Empire, which um, became known as the Great Jewish Revolt. Okay. It was a great Jewish revolt because for a period of time it was relatively successful. The Romans were uh, more or less caught off guard, um, didn't have enough uh, troops stationed in Judea to fight off the, uh, the, 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 the rebels. Um, there was a, a, a power vacuum happening in Rome at the time. There was uh, uncertainty about uh, who was going to uh, be emperor, so there was uh, a diversion of resources in other ways, etc., etc., etc. So there was a period of time where this once again, like you uh, may have learned about the Hanukkah story, other times in Jewish history, this kind of small band of Jewish rebels um, was managing to fight off and maybe even finish off um, the great power of the world at the time. By uh, 60 
869 uh, CE, the Romans got their act together a little bit more, sent in uh, large troop divisions into Judea to try to put down this rebellion once and for all, uh, led by um, a, a general named Vespasian. Uh, and uh, uh, Vespasian um, brought in his uh, troops and um, pretty quickly, in relative terms, um, uh, killed off this rebellion. To kill off, part of how they killed off the rebellion is the knowledge that the rebels were operating from a, um, a deep passion for um, instituting Judaism, Jewish religious law, Jewish religious sovereignty in the land of Israel. So they wanted to you know, sort of cut the snake off, cut the head of the snake off, which they perceived as being Jerusalem, which the Jews, as we've talked about, had considered to be the holiest city in, uh, in our tradition. Uh, and the center of the city was uh, the temple, which was the center of Jewish religious life at the time. Uh, the temple was this glorious, magnificent building uh, that was originally, if you remember, constructed by King Solomon um, around, uh, around uh, uh, 800 uh, BCE was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BCE, but then was rebuilt uh, by the Jews who came back from uh, captivity um, in the uh, 530s. Um, it was rebuilt then, stood for um, uh, uh, half a millennium um, until uh, a Roman king who considered himself to be a Jewish king, although not very many Jews considered him to be a Jewish king, uh, built, sort of, a, a, did a renovation project on the temple. That king's name was Herod, so sometimes the second, that temple, that second temple was uh, uh, sometimes known as Herod's temple. And it was this beautiful Roman uh, facade structure, but nevertheless contained within it the center of Jewish religious life and religious practice. And so Vespasian's forces knew that in order to really crush this rebellion, they had to, uh, they had to hit the Jewish population where it hurt. So what they wanted to do was sack Jerusalem and destroy the temple. Now, just to tell you how fierce the, uh, the Jewish rebels were um, and how fervently the Jewish people uh, in general uh, feel about Jerusalem and about the temple, um, even after the Romans conducted a, hold on, I have to count the, the uh, uh, months here. Uh, okay, the Romans did a seven-month siege of the city of Jerusalem. Okay, so that means that the Roman forces let nothing in, nothing out of the city of Jerusalem, no goods, no, no sewage, no anything, for seven months, right, trying to starve out the city population before they ultimately would swoop in and wipe out everybody in the city. Even after a seven-month siege, when the Romans finally breached the walls, um, which happened, according to the Jewish calendar, on the 17th of the Hebrew month of Tammuz, and there are Jewish uh, holidays, or not really holidays, commemorations, uh, marking these dates, which is how I kind of had them readily accessible. We just had one of them the other day, which was the 10th of the Hebrew month of Tevet, which was um, actually New Year's Day, um, which is a fast day on the Jewish calendar because it's a, a sad day. It was the beginning of the siege of, of Jerusalem. Um, so uh, 
the Romans broke through the walls at uh, the 17th of the month of Tammuz, about seven months later, almost exactly seven months later. Um, and, uh, and how I know, how you can know that the Jews felt very fervently and fiercely about Jerusalem and about the temple is if you can go to the old city of Jerusalem today, right? And you could see how far, how long it takes you to walk from the walls of the old city to the temple mount. It's, I mean, sometimes it takes you a long time to get there because it's like windy streets and you get kind of lost and there's lots of crowds, but it's like four city blocks, okay? It took the Romans three weeks to fight through four city blocks of Jewish rebels in order to get to the Temple Mount to eventually destroy it. Eventually they did, They in, uh, in the summer of uh, the year 70 CE, the Romans destroyed the temple um, and uh, um, uh, effectively uh, wipe out the Jewish rebellion, um, but also kill off a significant part of the Jewish population, um, establish a firmer uh, uh, Roman sovereignty over the land of Israel, um, and, uh, and, and, and kill off several di- distinct uh, groups of Jews, not necessarily in terms of like the people, they didn't necessarily kill all the people, but killed off the ideology and killed off a form of Judaism, which was worship in the temple. Right? Once the temple's destroyed, the second time, the Jews never again rebuild the temple, even though there are some groups and some movements throughout Jewish history that might want to, it never ends up happening. The reason it ends up happening um, after the destruction of the first temple is um, there's really only a 50-year gap between when the Jews, when the temple's destroyed, the Jews are exiled and then let back into Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. In this instance, um, the Romans forbid building on the Temple Mount, and the Romans remain in occupation of uh, uh, Judea, and eventually they rename it as uh, as uh, uh, Palestine. Um, they occupy um, that land for several hundred years. Um, so there's no real opportunity for the Jews to rebuild the temple, and so therefore the temple falls out of Jewish religious practice, um, and uh, there's a major Jewish religious reformation uh, that has to take place in order to make a Judaism that doesn't have the temple, which is how, when I say that there are several distinct groups, ideological groups of Jews that sort of die out, um, not necessarily the people, but the ideologies that die out because they're in, because some of them are wedded to uh, participating in the temple. I say that background to tell you a story. So the story goes that there is uh, um, one Jewish leader um, who sees the writing on the wall about the the impending Roman destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Uh, His name is Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Um, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is sometimes known as Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, um, the term rabbi is a uh, technical term meaning teacher, uh, but rabbi is a, a, a very specific kind of title at that time. Um, so a rabbi was somebody who uh, came from a group of Jews that were known in the contemporary literature as uh, Pharisees, uh, in Hebrew prushim, which are actually which actually means separatists. Separatists from what? I'll tell you in a minute. So. Um, the Prushim, the Pharisees, um, uh, were a, a, a group of Jews that were uh, dedicated above all else to the primacy, not only of the written Torah, but of uh, an oral tradition that they um, believed to be 
um, of uh, equal authority, equal weight to the Torah itself. So they, many of them participated, they, they believed in the uh, authority of the temple and, uh, they, you know, they, um, and of, uh, of, of ancient Jewish tradition, etc., etc. They were fully participating in, uh, in Jewish society at the time. But their particular slant on Judaism was that there wasn't only a written tradition, there was an oral tradition as well. There were many other elements of uh, what they believed. We'll get into some of that uh, in, in a little while, I think. But, um, uh, but that's one of the major features. That's one of the things that distinguished them from uh, their major rival group, which uh, were known as the Sadducees, the Sadukim, um, uh, which uh, literally translates to um, uh, the righteous, but uh, it's more related to um, a leading figure among the Sadducees is a priest named Sadok. Um, uh, and the Sadducees, the Sadukim, uh, believed that there was only one uh, uh, law that had authority, and that was the written law. There was no oral tradition that served to uh, interpret it and apply it. There was only the written law um, understood and applied as literally as possible. Pharisees didn't believe that. Pharisees believed that there was an interpretive tradition. That's what the oral tradition is, is an interpretive tradition. And the leaders of the Pharisees um, eventually became known as uh, Rabbanim, Rabbi, um, which means my teacher or my master, uh, because they were the um, uh, masters that Rav is part, can mean teacher, can also mean master. They were the masters of not only the written tradition, but the oral tradition as well. And as an oral tradition, it was transmitted teacher to student, teacher to student, teacher to student. And the dynamic among the Pharisees was to have, um, to have um, uh, those sort of uh, dynamics that play all the time. It's sort of like um, it's sort of like the Jedi Order, right? Um, you know, so you have like uh, you, there's always a master and disciple, master and apprentice, right? Um, that's how the Pharisees were too. They had master and apprentice, master and apprentice. Sometimes masters would have many many apprentices. Um, uh, you know, so there's a, 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 a statement by this uh, by one of one of the members of this group that says. Um, uh, 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 Rear many students, right? So you didn't just necessarily have one student, um, but that's why they were, that's why the leaders of that group were called rabbis. Whereas the leaders of the Sadducees weren't called rabbis; they didn't necessarily believe in that dynamic of transmitting Judaism. Their version of Judaism was much more um, hierarchical and hereditary, right? Much more wedded in a literal sense to the Torah, so therefore wedded to temple practice and the dynamics of priests and Levites and Israelites, and you are you inherit your status um, uh, by uh, heredity. The rabbis were much more dem- the rabbis, the Pharisees were much more democratic. It was a much more democratic approach to Judaism in that way um, because you didn't have to be born into a priestly family in order to um, have ascendancy within Jewish leadership. Um, you could um, just go to school for a long time, become a master of the tradition, and become a um, uh, a, uh, a leader that way. Uh, and there's a saying among the Pharisees that um, a, um, uh, a, a, a peasant who becomes a great Torah scholar is greater than an aristocrat who's a priest. Um, that's their approach, right? A much more democratic, universalist, in some ways, approach to uh, the Jewish tradition. 
So that's what rabbi means, is my teacher or my master. Rabban is a very specific kind of rabbi. Um, so there were usually, in the, in, during that period of time, uh, two major leaders of the Jewish community. Uh, there was the political leader, um, which is known as the nasi, uh, which means the prince um, or the patriarch. Uh, and uh, there's the uh, av beit din, which means basically the chief justice. Okay. The Jews of the time, um, uh, by Roman law, were permitted to have their own religious court. And their own religious court was known as the Sanhedrin. Some of you may have heard that term, Sanhedrin, right? Um, so the Sanhedrin was um, a, a Jewish religious court that operated in uh, Jerusalem uh, that uh, tried uh, religious cases, but also tried um, civil and criminal cases as well. The Romans, for the most part, didn't really want to occupy themselves with, you know, like trying Jewish murderers unless they were enemies of the state of Rome. Then they would try the Jewish murder. Um, uh, but, uh, but you know, sort of like in, in-house stuff, they said, you guys, you can have your own courts so long as you keep the rule of law uh, by doing it. So, uh, So one of the chief systems um, among the Jewish population at the time was uh, the Sanhedrin. And the head of the Sanhedrin was known as the Av Beit Din. That was one of the major Jewish political leaders um, of, of that time. The other, or maybe I'd call it Jewish religious leaders. The other Jewish leader um, in that era was known as the Nasi, like I said, the prince. That was much more like um, um, the, the chief ambassador to Rome, right? The, um, the, the person that was sort of uh, uh, the... the um, responsible for um, uh, uh, um, administering to the Jewish community and relating the needs of the Jewish community to, uh, to the Roman rulers. So rabbis, because there were, you know, sort of think of the different groups of Jews that existed at the time. I mentioned a couple. I mentioned zealots. I mentioned Pharisees. I mentioned Sadducees. Think of them kind of like political parties. So they're all Jews. They have slightly different ideologies, approaches to Torah and the Jewish tradition, but they're all sort of like in this melting pot of Jewish society. So um, it's not like there was like one authoritative Jewish group and the others weren't authoritative Jewish groups. They all sort of interacted and blended with each other, which meant that sometimes there were Sadducees, pre, uh, um, uh, Sadducees who were priests, and sometimes there were rabbis who were priests, and sometimes there were Sadducees who were uh, the chief of the Sanhedrin, and sometimes there were Pharisees who were the chief of the Sanhedrin, and sometimes there were Pharisees who were the Nasi, and sometimes there were Sadducees and Nasi, and sometimes there were zealots who were rabbis. And, these are all sort of just like just like sometimes there are Republicans who are the Speaker of the House, and sometimes those are also Tea Party Republicans, but sometimes they're not, right? So it's it's sort of like that, okay? Um, so when it, uh, a rabbi is called Rabban, it means he's not only a rabbi, meaning he's a leader uh, within the Pharisee sect of Judaism, but he's also the Nasi. He's also at that time the um, the, the chief ambassador of the Jewish community to Rome. So this guy, Yochanan ben Zakkai, is not only a rabbi, but the chief ambassador of the Jewish people to, uh, to, to Rome at, uh, at the time. And um, he sees the impending destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. He just, you know, there's a siege going on. There's nothing coming in and out. It doesn't take a genius, but he says, you know, this is not going to be good. So he and his students devise a plot, according to legend. Uh, and the plot is that uh, the only reason that the Romans would let Jews out of the city of Jerusalem was to bury their dead. So he had his students put him in a coffin, pretend that he was dead, 
bring him outside the city, and then once safely outside the city, to take him to Vespasian uh, in order to uh, um, uh, barter with him or deal with him. So the legend has it that they bring him to uh, the the city gates, and they, um, uh, you know, say, you know, they're not going to like just let anybody out. So they put spears in the coffin. They put everything miraculously. The uh, Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai is unharmed. He makes it to Vespasian, and he uh, and he says, uh, uh, "Hail Caesar." Now, if you recall, just a few moments ago, I mentioned that there were uh, power dynamics happening in, in Rome uh, that, uh, um, uh, that uh, left it unclear about who was going to become uh, Caesar. Vespasian didn't quite know that yet. Um, and so uh, when Yochanan ben Zakkai said to him, Hail Caesar, he said, you know, that's a, an offense that you could be executed for calling somebody who's not Caesar, Caesar. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai says, okay, I'll make you a deal. Don't kill me now, and in three days, if you don't become Caesar, then you can execute me, but if you do, you have to grant me a, a request. So, this is, you know, this is legend. I don't know if this, it actually happened this way, but uh, it's a good story nonetheless. So, uh, turns out three days later, Vespasian is named uh, emperor, and, uh, and uh, it comes true. So, he calls in Yochanan ben Zakkai and says... Uh, um, what's the request that, uh, that, that I can grant you? And Yochan ben Zakkai says, um, he knows that the, the destruction of Jerusalem is going to happen. The, he needs to put down this rebellion. It's, um, it, that's a foregone conclusion. If he pleads for this, for saving the city of Jerusalem and saving the temple, it's going to be a wasted wish. Um, it's like, you know, um, when you like pull the genie out of the lamp, and you like say like uh, I wish for a turkey sandwich or something, and then like you've just wasted one of your wishes. Always wish for more wishes first. So uh, I don't know why Yochanan Mitzakai didn't do that. He's so smart he would have wished for more wishes. But uh, so um, so he so he says, "Give me Yavne and its scholars." What does that mean? Give me Yavne and its scholars. It means that there is a city just outside of Jerusalem uh, called Yavne. And Yavne had a, um, a, a Pharisee school, a Beit Midrash, a house of Torah study. And, uh, um, and, and Yochanan ben Zakkai uh, said, um, you may not spare Jerusalem, but spare this city and its scholars and its Jewish leaders um, and enable us to prosper and thrive first. Let us continue doing what we're doing in Yavne. And by doing that, by granting that request, the Roman emperor enables um, a new form of Judaism to not only take root, but to flourish and ascend as the predominant form of Judaism at the time. And it's the form of Judaism that uh, many of you may be surprised to hear uh, is the form of Judaism that most of us um, uh, who call ourselves Jews practice today, even no matter what denomination, um, which is uh, um, which you could call rabbinic Judaism. Okay? Judaism today, by and large, is rabbinic Judaism, and, uh, and and any sort of sect or denomination or whatever that we have in the Jewish uh, uh, community today is, in some ways, um, a take on or response to or reaction to rabbinic Judaism, not necessarily any of the other ancient Judaisms that used to exist. And so that's what happened in 70 CE: is the temple was destroyed. That form of Ju uh, excuse me, that form of Judaism was wiped out along with it. 
and uh, this new form of Judaism that could exist without a temple, that could exist without sovereignty over Jerusalem, that could exist um, without a priesthood, um, that could exist uh, um, in any other city, in any other locale, um, uh, and, uh, and, and be portable and transmittable from teacher to student and not necessarily by heredity. That became um, uh, the not necessarily even the dominant form of Judaism, but really the only form of Judaism uh, and uh, um, a phenomenon that is true even until today. All right. In just a second, I'm going to go back and give a little bit more context to that story, but let's just pause there. Any questions so far? So that's the story I want us to think about tonight, and we're going to talk a little bit about the history, and then we're going to um, look at some of the material, okay? We're going to do some studying together. Um, so let's talk about the history for a minute, okay? Let's back it up uh, from the story that I just gave. So we just celebrated this holiday, Hanukkah, right? Who can tell me the story of Hanukkah? Something to do with dreidel. Um, okay. Yeah, go ahead. So um, the Assyrians were occupying the land, and a group of guys, um, Maccabees, his father, Mattathias, his four brothers, five brothers, the, um, oh God, what are they called? The, um, yeah, the Hasmians, um, decide to, you know, to, to rebel and fight them off, and they manage to do that. And uh, when they go to rededicate the temple, after the de- temple has been desecrated, you know, they get rid of the Assyrians and they um, rededicate the, te- and the pigs in the temple. That's what they always show you the pictures in, in Sunday school, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so then the Rabbanim make up this great story about finding a flask of oil that lasts for eight days. Make it up. You're so cynical. Oh, no. um, <laughs> hey, wait a minute. I knew that years ago. You, you just corroborated it. Um, okay. So you've got the basic skeleton uh, fleshed out. Um, wasn't there a part, though, that wasn't first the Assyrians, but it was Jews fighting against you? It was more of a civil ah, good, war good, good. between them. That the, the more religious people were more against the Freedom, but yeah. just freedom. But it wasn't against the Greeks. It was Jews fighting Jews. Or it wasn't only against the Greeks. Yeah. But it, right. Okay. Excellent. Good point. Okay. So let's just uh, let's just make sure we're all on the same page here. Okay. We'll we'll go back in time a little bit further um, to really where we left off in Jewish history many many weeks ago when we were talking about you know uh, the uh, history of biblical Israel, and we really left that off um, at. Uh, um, uh, the Babylonian captivity, didn't we? I think we did. Um, so Babylonian captivity, 586 BCE, Babylonians conquer Judah, destroy the temple, send the um, uh, aristocrats and priesthood and uh, um, uh, those types into exile in Babylonia. In um, 538, if I'm not mistaken, uh, um, King Cyrus of Persia uh, conquers the Babylonian Empire, has a much more tolerant attitude toward uh, uh, conquered foreign peoples than uh, the Babylonians did, uh, and allows the Jews who have been uh, captive in Babylonia to go back, anyone who want to, some decide to stay, 
which is the beginning of a concept that we talked about, known as the uh, the, the diaspora or the um, or the exile, depending on your point of view of it. But Jewish community living um, uh, by choice um, or sometimes by force outside the land of Israel, right? Which which didn't exist before that period. There's no such thing as really as Jews who didn't live in the land of Israel, except for the Jews who were slaves in Egypt and, and made the land of Israel. Um, uh, so some Jews stay in Persia, but uh, other Jews uh, um, move back to Jerusalem, rebuild the Jewish community there, rebuild the city, and rebuild the temple. Okay? Um, Judah is a province of the Persian Empire uh, for a couple hundred years. Uh, until, actually not quite a couple hundred years, until really, really only another, yeah, about 200 years. That's good, about 200 years. Uh, until um, Alexander the Great conquers much of the Persian Empire. Um, if you ever saw the movie 300, you know, that's you know part of that whole um, issue is the Greeks fighting Persians, right? So, um, no one, none of you saw 300? Yes. Oh, that's a good movie. Okay. Um, it's, it's a good movie. Go rent three. Okay. Uh, it should be. Maybe it's on Netflix. Uh, I assume it is. Um, so, uh, Alexander the Great, Greek ruler, conquers much of the Persian Empire, including uh, the part uh, that has the, uh, the land of Israel in it. Right? Um, falls under um, uh, Greek dominion. But, it's, a, it's an amazing sort of multicultural uh, uh, environment that the Jews have grown up in, by the way, just to think about that for a minute. Um, Jews had, came originally from Babylonia, um, spent several hundred years living in Egypt, right? And there was this tension in the ancient world between Bab- Babylon and Egypt um, and with, with Israel really caught in the middle. But that means that there's sort of cross current of these cultures that are mingling in um, that are influencing uh, Jews and, and Judaism and Jewish history uh, in, in a lot of interesting ways, sometimes positively and sometimes as a reaction you get Juda- Ju- Judaism and Jewish practices that respond to those other cultures. But then you, then you have the Babylon, the, the, uh, the Assyrians and the Neo-Babylonians again, and then the Persians and now the Greeks. The Greeks have um, uh, probably the most uniquely foreign culture uh, that uh, the Jews had engaged with or interacted with to this time, and they find it to be a, uh, a pretty exciting thing to be uh, part of the of the Greek-speaking world. This is um, this is you know uh, uh, high society for them, and it's a very you know so. Jews start learning Greek, start adopting Greek customs, start adopting Greek names. Um, that, that's where you get uh, Jews who are uh, who are known uh, uh, colloquially, even at the time, as uh, not Matityahu, which is the the name of the priest who starts the rebellion against the Greeks a little bit later, but Mattathias, right, or Judas, right. Um, those are Greek versions of Jewish names, but you also get. Um, you know, Jews with nice Jewish names like Aristobulus and Josephus and things like that, right? Um, so that so Jews are, are uh, seeing this outside culture, and even the ones that are still kind of loyal to Judaism uh, start embracing uh, these uh, um, outside Greek traditions, Greek languages. Um, uh, the Bible is translated into Greek. I mean, there's just a lot happening. Um, Alexander uh, dies in around 330, if I'm not mistaken, and his empire is split up into, into um, uh, really into two major parts. Um, uh, there is, uh, by two parts, 
divided by his uh, two major generals. Uh, one general's name is Ptolemy, and the other's name is Seleucus. Okay, and uh, uh, Ptolemy uh, gets uh, the, uh, uh, the the western part of the empire. Seleucus gets the eastern part of uh, Alexander's empire, and there are very often. Um, Contests, competitions, wars between the uh, Seleucid dynasty of Greek rulers and the Ptolemaic dynasty of Greek rulers over who could build a better testament to Alexander's empire, right? Who could be the best legacy of Alexander's Greece? Um, and, uh, and so at the time, the process of doing that, of building the best, most vibrant, most thriving Greek society, Greek empire was known as Hellenization, right? We're going to make whatever lands we rule as Greek as we possibly can. Introduce Greek customs, introduce Greek culture, introduce Greek language, sometimes forcibly so. Okay? Now, depending on the time and the place, the process of Hellenization may have been minor or major, depending on the attitude of the particular ruler at the time. Some of the rulers thought that just by um, building up uh, cities to their sort of ancient glory was enough of a testament to being uh, uh, the rightful heir to Alexander's empire. So you get you know cities like Alexandria and Egypt that, uh, that that doesn't really become like super Greek, uh, but uh, but becomes this thriving and booming metropolis, and uh, and that's enough for uh, for for the rulers at the time. But if, but you also get rulers like a guy named uh, Antiochus the uh, who was uh, a um, Seleucid dynasty ruler um, in uh, uh, including over the land of Israel um, who had a very um, uh, forceful approach to Hellenization um, wanted to uh, uh, strictly impose and enforce Greek customs and Greek culture on the native population now some in the native population didn't need a lot of forcing Right? They thought that th that was progress, right? So, depends on your view of these things, right? Some people will see it as, you know, you can have it today, right? Like, either you think that, uh, that, uh, Obamacare is this, you know, great liberation of, uh, of access to healthcare, or you think it is, um, this, uh, you know, uh, dictatorial imposition of government into our private lives. And it really kind of depends on your vantage point, right? So that's the truth with Hellenization in the land of Israel, too. Either you think that this is a, you know, a great liberation of Jewish culture to have access to Greek gymnasia and Greek religion and Greek language and Greek theater and all the things that, that uh, are all Greek to me, but they're really nice things to have. Um, or you think of it, as many people did, um, as, uh, as a, an unwanted imposition of foreign culture um, in a dictatorial way, um, in an unfree way on a population that doesn't want it. Depends on your vantage point. So there is a, uh, there are groups, there are sort of like battle lines forming among the Jewish population between pro-Hellenization and anti-Hellenization. Uh, and ultimately, pro-Antiochus IV and anti-Antiochus IV, who called himself uh, Epiphanes, which means uh, the godlike um, uh, which is a whole other, you know, sort of aspect of his personality. Um, uh, but um, what tipped the scale among the Jewish population 
was, uh, uh, at least among many in the Jewish population, was the fact that uh, Antiochus um, uh, um, plundered the temple's uh, treasury and uh, used the money to you know, fund building projects and things like that. Um, installed his first installed his own priests loyal to uh, his rule, and eventually got rid of the uh, entire establishment of the Jewish priesthood altogether and transformed the temple into a Greek temple. So that, so you know, I'm, I'm, I talked about these like camps for say Obamacare, right? And you have like kind of a, a large segment of the population in the middle that like you know sort of. If it if it benefits them, it's good, and if it doesn't benefit them, it's not good. They don't like really have like ideological you know favor or opposition to it, um, you know. Until like a death panel says that grandma has to die, and then they have you know. So that's sort of what happens. I I say that facetiously, okay? I don't really. Um, <laughs> just in case Sarah Palin is listening, I don't agree with uh, your uh, estimation of it, but. Um, but, uh, but so that's what happens uh, among the Jewish population is you have a lot of Jews that, you know, like kind of like Greek culture, but also like are in favor of Judaism and don't really have strong, you know, they're not like the Greeks aren't banging down their door because they're not really like deeply engaged in Torah study all the time. They, so they're not like really, you know, militant about it until there's like a tipping point where um, uh, where you, you see, that, okay, that's an overreach. That's an overstep. And so that leads to um, a group of priests um, instigating a rebellion against um, Antiochus's rule. And not only against Antiochus's rule, as Melody said, but also against the Jews that they perceived as being sympathetic to, uh, to Hellenization and Antiochus's rule. So um, they did, it was really a two-front campaign that these uh, 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 Maccabees or Hasmoneans um, uh, Hasmonean is like their family name, Maccabees is sort of like their nickname. Um, you know, it's like uh, uh, the Bin Ladens and Al Qaeda, right? Um, I use that analogy deliberately. So, um, because I mean, this is true. I mean, uh, Christian Bale just got a lot of flack for this, talking about Moses. And I don't know if it's an apt analogy for Moses, but it is probably an apt analogy for, say, the Maccabees to call them, um, you know, violent religious extremists. And it um, uh, makes our era somewhat morally problematic, um, morally challenging, um, uh, considering that we have um, a similar legacy that, you know, in, in some ways we celebrate, in, in other ways we don't because the rabbis, Debbie said, made up a story to kind of, you know, whitewash that history and make the holiday not really about a violent religious rebellion against uh, um, a dominant power, um, but that's really what the history was, that's really what the story was. Um, so anyway, the Maccabees were successful um, on, uh, on, on two fronts. They, uh, they uh, uh, managed to overthrow Antiochus' rule and establish Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel, which uh, was the first time there had been Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel since really the Babylonian destruction in 586. Even uh, during the uh, Persian period, there wasn't Jewish sovereignty really in the land of Israel because it was a province of the Persian Empire. So this is really the first time that there's Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel since uh, since 586 BC. So there's been, um, this, this happens uh, uh, in the middle of the... Uh, I guess you would call it the second century BCE, the the um, the, the the ones. Um, so it's been about four hundred years, and the the Maccabees, the Hasmoneans, were able to reestablish Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel.
Now, let me just pause there. That was a, a lot. Um, and this is really, in some ways, all background. But um, any, but it's important background, okay? Um, so, but any questions so far? Yeah. So the the Maccabean Revolt, uh, if I'm not mistaken, was uh, one one sixty six. Thank you. One sixty six. I think it started in one sixty eight, but uh, but they recaptured the temple in one sixty six. BCE, BCE. Yeah. Other questions? Okay, so here's the thing. There are problems with the Maccabees. Um, you know, we, we have a whole holiday celebrating them, but we never like really like scratch so much beneath the surface about like um, uh, who they were, what they were doing, what people at the time thought of them, and you know, like what happens um, after that rebellion uh, takes place. So I already mentioned a little bit about the who they were. Um, part of who they were were um, uh, uh, violent religious extremists. I mean, there's no two ways about it. They had a, uh, um, a, a, a fundamentalist view of, uh, of, of Torah um, and uh, demanded Jewish uh, political sovereignty over the land of Israel um, and were willing to fight a, a bloody guerrilla war until they, uh, until they achieved it. Right um, now, like other extremist groups, um, they were much better at rebellion than they were at governing. Right. So, if you uh, ask, you know, what happens if we do? We, if we check in on these on those Maccabees, you know, a few years after the rebellion, how are they doing? Uh, the answer is not very good. Right, and they actually, um, over the course of a century, um, uh, end up being as um, as corrupt, um, inept, and in some ways oppressive as the Greeks were, who they overthrew. Um, another problem with the Maccabees is, or well, it depends on your perspective on these things, but another problem with the Maccabees is um, is is ideological. So I mentioned before the uh, the uh, the Maccabees that the, the Hasmonean family um, were of what sort of uh, um, Jewish denomination? What were they were they were not only Jews but they were what? So, so someone said it. <laughs> no, they weren't. Or the Orthodoxy didn't exist. What? They weren't Sadducees. They were priests. They were priests. They were priests, right? They were they were what we call Kohanim, right? Um, and there were, you know, there were uh, uh, you, you had like a lot of different kinds of priests. You had like you know the you had a high priest uh, who was from a particular priestly family, and you had your sort of like local parish priests that were from the same kind of general uh, tribe, but uh, but not uh, um, uh, not so uh, aristocratic. These were sort of like backwater priests. Um, Meaning to say that they 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 weren't like uh, regular temple functionaries. They were just sort of your like your like average local priest. Um, and so they do two things uh, that uh, that irks some Jews, depending on your reading of Torah. The first is when they uh, recapture the temple, 
they uh, establish uh, uh, one of themselves as uh, the high priest. Now, the problem with that is that the high priest has to come from a particular family. It's supposed to be a descendant of uh, Aaron, specifically, uh, and a particular uh, line in Aaron's lineage. So uh, Aaron has four sons, according to the book of uh, Leviticus, um, Nadav, Avihu, Elazar, and Itamar. Uh, Nadav and Avihu uh, die childless. Uh, and so there's only Elazar and Itamar. Um, Elazar's family is the one uh, from whom the um, the high priest has to come. Um, other priests come from Itamar's family. Um, so one problem that people have with the Maccabees is that they establish a high priest through what is perceived to be uh, an ineligible lineage. But there's another problem because they kick out the uh, Greek rulers. And they establish an independent Jewish state in its place with a king. And they establish one of their own family as the king. Right? That makes sense. I win the, you know, to the victor goes the spoils, I win the rebellion, and I'm going to be the king. From the point of the view of the Bible, why is that problematic? This is a tough one. Because you get, you get deep in the weeds of... Uh, uh, Jewish tribal genealogy here. Good. And what line do the priests come from? Good. Right. So remember, going back, 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 uh, there are 12 tribes of Israel um, correlating to the 12 sons that Jacob has. Um, the priests come from the tribe of Levi, of Levi. Um, the king is supposed to come from the tribe of Judah, even though the first king actually comes from the tribe of Benjamin. But the what's perceived to be the um, uh, authoritative line of kings is the Davidic line of kings, right? People, people coming from King David relate themselves back to King David, who is from the tribe of Judah. And so Jewish tradition became pretty firmly established that the rightful heir to the throne of the, of the Jewish people has to be from the tribe of Judah. So you begin to uh, get um, uh, uh, religious political groups forming among the Jewish population, either in favor of or in opposition to uh, what the Maccabees are doing. And it sort of depends on, you know, how strictly, how literally you read Jewish history uh, or Jewish, uh, uh, Jewish law, um, how, uh, how tied in you are. You know, if you, if you are uh, a group that, is, that benefits from, uh, say, being close to power, you're likely to support the people who are in power. If you are a, a group that is kind of alienated from power structures, you tend to uh, uh, not support those who are in power. If you are um, Jews who... Uh, uh, like, you know, Greek culture, et cetera, and you aren't really happy about these, you know, um, uh, uh, Jewish fundamentalists who just took control of your government, you are in another kind of political camp. So the Maccabees established the first Jewish political commonwealth in several hundred years, but what they also do is uh, begin to seed uh, 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 a number of really interesting Jewish political and religious divisions.